It's 1973 on the sandy, beachy shoreline of Honolulu, Hawaii. A 12-year-old, Tim Story, is spending the summer hanging out with his sister, who at the time was an aspiring model. Best summer ever, thinks the preteen, as he gleefully body surfs amongst the rolling waves. All of a sudden, a particularly big wave comes along out of nowhere and rolls him, knocking off his swim trunks. As he gets his bearings, he glances over. So I'm 12, skinny, with a Michael Jackson afro, and I see my swimsuit. Tim looks over and sees his suit bobbing atop the water's surface, just out of reach. And I promise you, I think no other wave's going to hit me because I lost my swimsuit. So I'm going to get it, and I get just devastated by another wave. So I'm thinking, how am I going to get from the ocean back to the sand where all my stuff is? Because I'm naked, 12 and skinny. In much the same way, many of us learn our first harsh lessons of life and the real world, Tim is about to get a dose of reality. Just because the sea knocked off his trunks does not mean it has any intention of giving him a timeout to get himself together. Because waves be a wavin' and life be a lifin'. He hops closer to his suit. Whoosh, another wave. He gets up and tries again. Whoosh, one more. He gets a little closer each time and then... So finally, I get the swimsuits, grab them, and boom, put them on. That's how I feel life can be sometimes. It's like you got hit by a wave, hit by a wave. You're like, time out. Okay, I just lost my job. Or time out, I just got divorced. Or time out, my daughter's acting crazy. But then another wave will hit. And so what I talk about is the waves will come. But it's important to, when the setback hits, don't sit in it, don't settle in it, and definitely don't cement yourself in it. And here, in a nutshell, is the philosophy of Tim's story. One of the most prolific pastors, thought leaders, and high-profile life coaches in the game. Known as the comeback coach, he teaches people how to turn their setbacks into setups. And when I say he's taught People? I'm talking people. Tim has coached Kanye West. I would say Kanye is, you know, he's my little brother. Charlie Sheen. There's sides of Charlie that other people don't know that I know that I could go to his house and he'll cook me food. Robert Downey Jr., Dog the Bounty Hunter, Quincy Jones, and Oprah. That's right. The queen herself. A tweet. Fantastic hour with author and life coach Tim Story. You can go from nowhere to now here, just like that. When we think of the setbacks we all have in life, how many of us let them take us out for way longer than needed, simply because we didn't know how to get back up? What if you could get the playbook from someone who has helped some of the biggest stars, athletes, and executives? come back from things that felt insurmountable. Like, I am a god. Everybody says, who does he think he is? I just told you who I thought I was, a god. And over six times during that call, you used the N-word. Yes, sir. Why were you using that word so freely? 
Well, I thought I had a pass in the black tribe to use it, kind of like Eminem. Who gave you the pass? The brothers. Who were the brothers? Winner, winner, chicken dinner. I don't think so. Winner, winner, sheen dinner. Wouldn't we all like to just stop the waves of life from hitting us when we're in a crisis? When we're trying to figure stuff out, when we're just trying to collect our thoughts? Well, we can't stop the waves, but we can get tools and tactics to ride them out a bit more gracefully to make life a little less choppy along the way. So what is the key to a well-orchestrated comeback? It might not surprise you to know that according to Tim, it has a lot to do with gratitude. I'm Jamie Hess, and today I'm bringing you life lessons and personal stories from the man himself, Tim's story, today on the Gratitudeology Podcast. Would you through the fire? Would you ride through the storm? Will you walk on a wire? Will you save me if I fall? Will you break through the madness? Set us down where we're safe. I'll be right here waiting till you find me again. It's November 2nd, 1960, and a beautiful, sassy young woman is getting ready to give birth. She has four children already with her husband, a striking man of Hispanic descent, six foot two and a half with green eyes. Each of her four older children have those same green eyes. So when her baby was born and everyone gets a good look at him, they appeared puzzled. This child was missing those signature green eyes, And that's not all that was different. Three of the four had very vivid green eyes. And then the other one, kind of brownish green, my sister Viola. So I knew that there were some differences. The other difference was his skin color. Tim was black. And then later I would find out that I had a different dad. Yeah. My three older sisters really took care of me, but they were overprotective and I never found out why until later in life. Part of it is that they they were aware of the story that I was a product of an affair that my mother had. Tim's father, who he says was a good man, though a weekend alcoholic, but a hard worker at his job at Bethlehem Steel, just couldn't quite make himself treat Tim the same. So his sisters picked up the slack to make sure he was okay. The man that I thought was my father, uh, who was a great guy, uh, he would take four of the kids out to do things, to do events. And then my mother would say, Timmy, you don't, you don't want to go because it's going to be boring. But I was already like six, seven, so I did want to go. So uh, then my older sister would maybe say, hey, Timmy, don't worry. When we get home, you know, we're going to have fun. Uh, my second to the oldest sister, Viola, would say, I know you like painting. I'll paint with you. So I think that they were trying to uh, cover, protect me, and probably heal me already. But I, I was very aware that something was going on. Yeah. Tim remembers these occasions like they happened yesterday. 
I asked him if there were any trips that he was excluded from that stood out in his mind. Knott's Berry Farm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I remember that clearly. So it wasn't like Disneyland, but it was like the next best thing. Or to this breakfast place that they would go to, and then I'd find out they all had pancakes. Uh, and that was like a treat to a family that's just like stepping up. Tim doesn't blame his father for this treatment. I think in fairness to the man who I thought was my father, um, to, to have a child that you think is yours because you don't know that your wife is having an affair that I knew of, and then I come out uh, the color that I am, that probably blew him away pretty heavy. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I do give him credit for doing his best to try to make me feel uh, semi connected to the family. Young Tim did his best to keep his chin up. Regardless of the secrets, he was charismatic and a leader amongst his friends. There was just something about him, people would say. Something special. He flourished, even amidst his peculiar family dynamic. And like so many families around this time period, everyone just kept their mouth shut and pretended things were normal. What no one could have known was that everything was about to get far from normal. And there would be no pretending that things were okay. When Tim was 10, something unimaginable occurred. This man that raised me, that ended up dying when I was 10 in a car accident, he was going through a green light, and unfortunately a man ran a red light, and blessed the man's heart. He came and apologized to our family, and um, it just an accident. And my, the man who I thought was my father died. Then, just two years later, my sister's in a car accident. She was so beautiful and amazing. Her two friends are driving in the front, you know, uh, seat. Um, and my sister's in the back. They're going to San Francisco. They're just young. They're 20. They, they're going to have fun and meet one of their relatives. And she dies. And there's so many things in my life that have given me opportunity to go, I think I'm going to be a discount version of myself. Maybe that will feel better. Maybe if I'm not trying to shine so bright, and if I just discount myself, if I put myself on the sale rack, maybe the bad crap won't come at me so hard. Of course, those are thoughts that go through your mind. Tim tried to wade through his complicated feelings, and his aunt must have sensed that it was time for this boy to have a bit of clarity that he deserved the truth. At a family gathering, she pulled him aside. So I was at a uh, family get-together, and my aunt came up to me and she said, uh, Timmy, I want you to know that uh, me and your uncle are not doing so well. <laughs> I must have been a very evolved 12-year-old for her to tell me this. <laughs> and uh, I probably will not see you again. But uh, I want to tell you that number one, you're going to be very well known in life. She literally said that. And she says, in fairness to you, you need to know some truth. The man that you think is your father, that is not your father. And then she began to give me some specifics. And 
She says, do you know that? I said, I know it in my inside. She said, have you discussed it with your brother or your sisters? I says, no. Have you discussed it with your mother? No. And then I said, in fairness to them, you know, thank you for telling me, but that's all I want to know. And then she said something interesting. She said, do you want to know what he looks like? So it's not the day of the iPhone. It's uh, the day of a picture. So I thought she was going to show me like a picture. She goes, you want to know what he looks like? And I said, no. And then she said, well, I'm going to tell you. He looks like, and she did this to my face. In recreating this story, Tim looks me in the eyes, much like his aunt must have done with him that day, and slowly circles my face with his pointer finger. He looks like you. You have his face. And, you know, he's, he's, he's Cuban black. He's Afro-Cuban. And she was correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Eventually, Tim would try to confront his mom about these truths to get some clarity on his lineage. But she vehemently and angrily denied it each time. And here's the fascinating thing about Tim. For many, this would cause a rift or a deep angst. Someone's own mother being unable or unwilling to be honest with them. But in this situation, we begin to see why Tim is so successful at teaching the key to happiness and resilience. Instead of holding a grudge against either of the parental figures in his life, Tim looks inside his heart for the answers. And so all that was going on, and I thought, you know, bless that man's heart that raised me till I was 10. He must have been going through a lot to even take me. And then my mother to lie right to my face and to try to lie to everybody else. She must have an awful lot of shame So um, I'm just going to handle it the best I I can. Amazing. Yeah. So these issues of identity, I think that for most people, it Mm -hmm. could send you in one of two directions. Yeah. It could be the chip on your shoulder for the rest of your life. Well, I could have been great if I hadn't been lied to. I could have been great if things weren't so confusing. Or you could use it to say, you know what? Party of one coming through, coming in hot. Yeah. And it seems like that's what you did. Does that track? Yeah, but number one, I like the way you phrase that. Um, I don't think that I could wrap my mind around um, how to utilize this for my strength. Mm. So at that that point in my life, I'm not thinking, how do I turn this pain into power? <laughs> sure. I just, I just have always been very merciful. And even outside of religion, I'm just a merciful guy. I couldn't help but pause and reread this line just about 10 times. Just a merciful guy. In this current world, full of finger-pointing, judgmentalism, and hypocrisy, it strikes me how shook I am by a man standing in compassionate empathy and just feeling merciful. Like, let others have their shit. We've all got a lot going on. I'm choosing mercy today. I thought, Huh, what a concept. And a lot of others thought the same thing. Because when Tim decided to go the path of religion, faith, and service, it just kind of came naturally to him. Although he didn't immediately know it was his calling.
The interesting thing is, is that I really didn't like church too much when I was a kid. Because church lasted too long. <laughs> but Tim knew he was a born servant leader. But when I was a junior in high school, a girl from my high school handed me a book on the life of Mother Teresa. By reading that book, it changed my life. I literally started crying because it said that she was going in to be a teacher. She was teaching Mother Teresa as an educator, but she could hear the cries of the orphans. And man, Pierre was an athlete, funny guy, popular in school. I was crying reading this book. It touched me. So then I went to the guidance counselor who liked me and he says, Timmy, I'm not kidding. I think you got like a calling on your life. Look how everybody looks to you as a leader. Uh, you're like a Martin Luther King and you should study him too. So I did. So I went to seminary thinking I'm just going to be a humanitarian. That's how that started. Imagine being told by a high school guidance counselor that they see you like Martin Luther King. But Tim took it all in stride. This guidance counselor saw me as a revolutionary person and he was correct. So, but I, I went into to seminary very gingerly. I, I didn't like come in there with swag. I went in gingerly because it was like, okay, seems like a lot of religion. <laughs> so I went into seminary and I started to create uh, truly my own life coaching system before I'd ever heard of Tony Robbins or anybody. I'd never heard of Les Brown, Dale Carnegie, Zig Ziglar, anybody. I literally just started creating my own courses and teaching them in inner cities in Tampa, Florida. And it was this that would grab the attention of football player Reggie White. And Reggie said, I have money, you have a skill set, let's go. Reggie began helping Tim expand his teachings and people, some pretty high profile ones, start to take note. Yeah, so what happens is um, in the early 90s, I start to look out in different crowds and then I'd see Denzel Washington in my meeting. And then I'd find out, oh, he was filming a movie and somebody invited him to come. And then I look over here in Miami and I see Danny Glover, but he was super big because he had just done those movies with Mel Gibson. And then another time I, I look over there and there's, there's Ashley Judd. So what started to happen is people would say, you gotta see this guy. He's a minister, but he doesn't talk like a minister. So I think that that's been one of my strengths is I don't watch preachers preach. Um, a lot of people watch preachers preach. If I wanna get fed the word, I study it on my own, I listen to Bible on tape, or I'll listen to teachers. And so I think that, you know, when I started to get around the Walter Matthaus, the Jack Lemons, the Tony Curtises, the Charlton Hestons, the Vidal Sassoon's, they started saying things like this, like, kid, what a gift. And you're, part of your gift is you're not trying to be anybody. You're just so uniquely yourself. So that was that was the thing that worked. I heard you the the Super Soul Sundays, the talk you gave that you love. I'm a bee. 
Yeah, I'ma be, I'ma be, I'ma, I'ma, I'ma be. Yeah, by the Black Eyed Peas. Yeah. And why do you love that song? So I think that we all know we're supposed to be. So when I go speak at Inner City Kids, to Inner City Kids, mostly at the age of like five, six, seven. I notice when they're like nine, 10, 11, they're already doing this, okay? But when they're younger, and I say, what do you want to be? And they'll say, I'm going to be an astronaut, a little girl. I'm going to be Beyonce. I'm going to be like LeBron James, a, a little boy. They have an I'm a B spirit. And so I think that what I brought to Hollywood was a fresh perspective. And I didn't want anything from him. Anything. So here's Tim preaching in a very unpreacher-like manner in this totally authentic, fresh way that's attracting people like a magnet because it's just cool. So he brings this fresh perspective back to L.A. and forms the Hollywood Bible Study. So the, the Hollywood Bible Study started in the house of Diane Cannon, who was married to Cary Grant. And it got so big that we then went to Sunset. and But you'd see everybody walking through there. Tim pauses for a minute, as if to think back on all the icons who graced his audience at the Hollywood Bible study. And then, and it's as if you can see his wheels turning inside his mind. He decides to keep the full roster and this moment of euphoric recall in his head. So I don't need to name drop all the names because it will never happen again. No, I was helping like 700 and probably... 70 of the biggest names we have in entertainment. Uh, so I think that it was, it was just a time, a season, a hunger for uh, God, a longing for God with a young guy that was breaking it down in a way that people could understand. I mean, I can understand that, can't you? This hunger for God or meaning or whatever, I think maybe we're all in it again now. Desperate times, lots of confusion and angst. So people turn to faith for comfort. But what I find so fascinating about Tim's journey is how quickly he accumulated celebrities, like big name celebrities, into his following. I've heard it said that celebs flock to him simply because he doesn't try to tell them what to do. He's simply a soft place to fall. And fall? Did they ever? Look, as a former entertainment publicist myself for nearly two decades, I've always been fascinated with pop culture meltdowns. I mean, who's not, right? I'll admit it. I really leaned in when someone like Charlie Sheen or Kanye West, all people Tim has worked with personally, would have some sort of a public downfall. I would just get glued to TMZ like the rest of the world because I'm like, what is going on? These people have everything, right? They, they should be grateful, right? Yet they blow up their lives time and time again. So is it a lack of gratitude, a lack of boundaries, impulse control? Or is it something they didn't fix before they got famous that now came up to the surface? Or does Tim think that fame and money corrupt and cause the meltdown? I think that it's a um, hybrid. It's both. So there's, a, there's a, a scripture in the Bible, Jeremiah 18. It says, for I am the potter and you are the clay. I'd like to shape you as seems best to me. And part of the process of making pottery, as you know, is they'll take the clay and put it on a wheel. 
and then the potter will begin to mold it. What I find with a lot of celebrities that I continue to work with, a lot of them only want to be molded to a certain degree because they have such talent, right? Such charisma. They're like, you know what? I know I'm supposed to show up at one, but I show up at 2.30, okay? They don't, they don't want to deal with that discipline side. And then there's also a, a part of the making a pottery where they take a, take a thin wire and they take it through the clay. And when I've asked people that have done this, I said, why did you do this? And they said, to take the air bubbles out. Because when I put it in the kiln, in the furnace, that if I do not get the air bubbles out, it'll crack or explode. So for the friends that you have that are entertainers and the friends I have that are entertainers, this is what we see. They're cracking and exploding because they're not dealing with the air bubbles that have always been there. Air bubbles. Little issues that maybe the rest of us would have to work out in real time, but celebs can kind of sweep under the rug while the rest of the world is given them accolades. Truth is, as much as the world likes to put them down, it's not easy living life as a celebrity in the public eye with trolls and scrutinizers. To many of them, Tim represents a non-judgmental ear, a shoulder to cry on. Quite simply, Tim holds space for those who no one else will give any space to. How's it going, Kanye? Don't say anything to me, man. Like, stop asking me questions. You out in front of my house at 4 a.m. Come out, how's it going? It's not going good. Y'all here trying to take money out to, to make money off us. That's how it's going. We were it's 4 a.m. It's 4 a.m. And you ask me how it's going. You know, I don't want you to say nothing to me. You hear what I'm saying? Somebody like Kanye, who I think mm -hmm. is on all of our hearts and minds right now, what do you think is in his heart right now? Like, what would you say to him today? I would say Kanye is, you know, he's my little brother. I've been around him since 2006. And I feel as close to him now as I did in 2006. Um, I, th I think in fairness to someone like that is you have to look at uh, trauma. You have to look at devastation, life interruptions. And when you're so close to your mother, and I was very good friends with his mother, Donda, and he loses his mother, that's a devastating thing. And you, when you're dealing with, uh, as Deepak Chopra calls it, mental hygiene problems, or as the great Dr. Amen says, brain health, um, those are the things that Kanye's dealing with. So, you know, I love him. I talk to him. Uh, we're good friends and we have great conversations. And my, my, my goal and my dream is that he will continue to find his way up and out, even though he has said some very ugly things and hurt a lot of people in his addiction. But I was with another very famous guy three nights ago, and at his show, he made a complete fool of himself because he was high, and he's very famous. I'm not gonna say his name right now, but that was hard to watch. And But I'm sure... Um, Everybody that's listening have had moments in their life that would have been hard to watch had the cameras been on them. I'm not a Kanye West apologist, far from it. But I think what we can hear is that sometimes unwell people just 
lose it. And Tim holds compassion for them all. Just like that Mother Teresa book he read back in junior high. I asked about another toughie, Charlie Sheen. And I've been friends with Charlie Sheen since 98. And um, we have amazing discussions. He's a very nice guy, but can be very lost at times. And when he gets into that lost cycle, he's a completely different human being that I can look at him. He's not even the same guy. But he does interesting things like call my mother just to talk to her about life. That's right. Tim just told me that Charlie Sheen, yeah, this same Charlie Sheen. Your anger and your hate, I think, is coming off as erratic to people. Passion, my passion. It's all okay, passion. Okay, your passion yes. is coming off as erratic right. to people. Right, well, you borrow my brain for five seconds and just be like, dude, can't handle it. Unplug this bastard. Yeah, because it just, it fires in a way that is, um, I don't know, maybe not from this particular uh, terrestrial uh, realm. That that Charlie Sheen calls Tim's mother to chat about life? There's sides of Charlie that other people don't know that I know that I could go to his house and he'll cook me food. So I, I, I love people. So whether they're in the high or the low or the middle, um, I'll, I'll stick with you uh, and, until you're just being really hurtful to everybody. Then I got to just check you real hard. I took this chance to ask a tough question about another famous friend and client who Tim checked recently. Well, Dog yeah. the Bounty Hunter was somebody that you had empathy for, but also gave him a little check, right? Yes. So when Dog said some racist things. The accusations are serious and scathing. Dog's daughter claiming he is racist, homophobic, and was unfaithful to her late mother, Beth, who died just over two years ago. Did you cheat on Beth? No. Never. Never. His team asked me to go on Larry King with him. And the people that were around me said, not a great idea. And so I, I had to look at like, okay, I got a pretty dope career going here. But I don't believe that Dog is a racist, even though he said things that were racist. And so I did go on Larry King uh, with uh, Dwayne Dog Chapman and defended the fact that he was not a racist, but had a big mouth. <laughs> and I remember Beth, uh, his his late wife, who I did her funeral, said, man, nobody talks to my husband like that. I can't believe you get away with things like that. This is, at its core, what makes Tim, Tim. He can get away with shooting straight with these big celebs who often hear nothing but yes. He can talk to them and not get intimidated by them or bow down. He just holds space. So I, I really come real with these to these people. Yeah. There's not one guy I've ever backed off to, male or female. And as you know, I deal with the biggest. Yeah. Well, so let's go there. Let's talk about Oprah. Yeah. Right. So it really seems to me, Tim, like as far as the law of attraction goes, you just have the magnet turned the right way. Okay. And I think that comes from gratitude. So in 2015, a big opportunity came to you, and yes. that was with Oprah. Can we talk about that? Yeah, so so before that, before 2015, 
Um, Quincy Jones, who has mentored me since I was in my late 20s, he kept telling Oprah, you gotta have Tim on. And Oprah's thing, and Oprah will watch this, so hi, Oprah. Not gonna lie, I I just peed my pants a little. Um, Hi, Oprah? Uh, Okay, okay, back to Tim. Oprah's thing was, I'm, you know, kind of met guys like Tim, and, 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 and Quincy kept saying, no, you have not. Trust me, you've not met this guy. So Oprah said to me, Tim, nine different times, he just kept bugging me. And her former executive producer of over 20 years, Diane Hudson, is one of my best friends now. And she says, Tim, I remember your face of your book, okay, Utmost Living, on my desk forever because, you know, people just kept sending it over and over, like, put him on. And, you know, I think so much of it is about timing. And there, there came a time that it was like Gail King, who's so nice to me, Diane Hudson, B.B. Winans, a singer, and Quincy all just surrounding Oprah and saying, pay attention to this guy. And man, when we hit, when we met, it was like fire. We sat in her backyard for the first time um, around 2014, before we did the interview in 2015, and just went at it like we had known each other since we were kids. And that is continues now. What was it like to walk out there the first time you were meeting Oprah? I think that I have such respect for her and... She's one of my favorite minds ever, if not the favorite mind. And part of the thing about her, and your mother would know this. Tim is referring to my own mother, TV journalist Joan London, who of course has met and adores Oprah. She really remembers things. So she's done so many interviews. She's like a walking library. And so when you talk to her, there's such depth that can just come out at any time, right? So you could be like in the humor section because she likes to laugh with me and we like to do our little gossipy stuff. But then you go around the corner and you're in the depth section of the library with her. Does that make sense? Sure does. And she can go there probably like no one else that I've known. Probably like no one else. So the first time that you sat with her, you just sat with her to get to know one another? Yeah, we just we were just getting to know each other as people and seeing what we should do together. And I made sure not to ask because I knew that she always had people asking. And she later said to me, good move. And, and then she later said, I just feel like I want to open my world to you. And she did. So it's... So much that has happened in tours and shows and specials and Oprah Cruise and her book and her magazines and all that, but even things to come. But, uh, but I love her as a, as a friend. She's my friend. Tim, an aspiring spiritual leader, sat with Oprah Winfrey and didn't think of himself. He didn't ask for a thing. He simply was grateful for the moment. He simply made a friend. 
How many of us approach opportunities from the wrong place and then wonder why it didn't pan out? We either come out of the gate too bold, asking for too much and getting rebuked, or we shrink down, not feeling worthy of the attention. Which brings us back to the concept we started today's episode with. After the tragedy of Tim's youth, it would have been so easy for him to fall into a state of victimhood. So many things in my life that have given me opportunity to go, I think I'm going to be a discount version of myself. Maybe that will feel better. Maybe if I'm not trying to shine so bright and if I just discount myself, if I put myself on the sale rack, maybe the bad crap won't come at me so hard. Of course, those are thoughts that go through your mind. Mm. Yeah, when you're standing out in front, there's a lot more opportunity for the waves to hit you. No doubt. Yeah. No doubt. You almost want to, it's like those kids that are in the children's choir. You when you're not feeling like you're the best singer or if you're shy, you want to like hide way in the back row. I've been put out in the front row since day one because of my skin color or my charisma or whatever. There's been so many times I just wanted to just go way in the back of the little kid choir and go, you guys shine. And I want to be a discount version of myself. Okay. Okay. I know what you're thinking. He's, he's always grateful, always compassionate. That doesn't seem attainable. So I asked him. Was there ever a time when life knocked the shout out of you? I would say divorce because I waited. Uh, I was 25, but I was like a good kid. And um, I didn't date through seminary. And I had already had a lot of charisma. And I was already speaking on stages. So I was getting attention, but... I was really into um, like what I was doing, seminary, helping people. And I married into a very powerful family. And, you know, I asked the dad uh, who's very smart and has done a lot in the world to help people for his daughter's hand in marriage. And then to get married to her and be into it two years and go, yikes. Yikes, we're like two different individuals. Like, she likes it quiet at home. She doesn't want the phone to ring. She doesn't want to talk about what I'm doing outside in the house. And that was very difficult. We lasted 11 and a half years. And uh, now we're phenomenal friends. We didn't argue. Uh, and it wasn't not about that. It was just like two different people. But that was really hard to get divorced. I felt like a, a, a real public failure for the first time. Yeah, that, that, that sucked. Yeah. Pretty good. Isn't that amazing that, you know, you felt like a public failure? Public. Yeah. Yeah, because finally I gave, if I had some people that maybe thought I was too, um, too happy, I think this gave some of these people a chance to finally go, look at that little bastard. He can't even keep his marriage together. And, you know, I was really like attentive to my kids and trying to do the best I could. But I would say in hindsight, I was not equipped to handle her. 
Interesting. Sounds like you have a lot of empathy for everybody else, but sometimes not all of the empathy for yourself. 100%. Yeah, that's yeah. human. Yeah, very human. Yeah. But good call on that. Mm. But I don't beat myself up, but I just think that um, in certain cases, I could have done a better job. Sure. Yeah. And here is that quiet humanity that makes Tim not just a spiritual giant, but a humble friend. He is known as the comeback coach because he's had to turn his own setbacks into setups so many times. He refuses to be knocked down by life's waves, and he helps others do the same. And from sitting here for the hour with Tim, I can totally understand why. He lives in a place of resonance that's pleasantly powerful and powerfully pleasant. He's a lot, but not too much. He both holds space and commands the room. His gratitude shines through a light so bright it cut through the darkness of his youth, but not so bright that it blinds people or shines obnoxiously in their eyes. Tim embodies that warm glow that sparks just enough brightness in the room to make it feel like home, safe. And his light continues to shine in his latest book, The Miracle Mentality. So you wrote The Miracle Mentality. Mm -hmm. What are the main takeaways? Okay. So the, the idea of The Miracle Mentality came from Sunday school when I was a kid. So I'm a little chocolate kid uh, being taught uh, by these Sunday school teachers. There was a guy by the name of Noah, and he built his ark. Okay, there was a guy by the name of Abraham. He was in his 90s, was not supposed to have a baby, and he did. Okay, I'm like five, six, seven. I'm buying into these stories. I'm like, this is dope, okay? So I was already forming, uh, forming a miracle mentality at five, six, and seven. And then when they took me to Disneyland, when I'm like seven years of age, it was over with. What? Tomorrowland, Frontierland, you go in this one place and this bear is singing? <laughs> I mean, uh, I was hooked. You know, this ride, the, the, the Matterhorn, uh, I was hooked. So the, the miracle mentality just formed. And the more I, I realized that there was this amazing God that uh, allegedly did amazing things, I bought into it. It wasn't about religion. It was about I bought into this thing that God could do amazing things. Mm. Yeah. So let's talk about the book a little bit. Like if people are to get that book, what yeah. are they, what, why are they buying it? Yeah. What do they want in their life? So I think that in my travels, 78 countries of the world, just three weeks ago, I was in Istanbul, Turkey, and in um, Sofia, Bulgaria. So I travel the world as a humanitarian and as a speaker. What I've found is people live in these categories, the mundane, I'll give you some M's here, the messy and the madness. And the fourth one is in the magical. Most people are so caught in the mundane, they miss the magical. Okay. It's like butterflies can come by you and you miss them because you're in the mundane of just feeling overwhelmed. The messy is, is the disheveled. Things are not right in your life. But magical moments are trying to come and visit you. 
but you're pushing them away because of the messy. The madness is the chaotic, which most people have been there that are watching this podcast. You've been there, I've been there. And you are totally missing the magic. The magic to me is the extraordinary, uncommon, not regular. So I teach people how to tap into the magic on a daily basis. Oof. And I cannot be beat at this. I can be beat at making waffles or uh, other food items, but in this, I cannot be beat. So where do you sit? The mundane, the messy, the madness, or the magical? I know where I sit. Oh, do I ever. You know, I got to tell you just anecdotally and personally, this is what I struggle with more than anything. Yeah. I think like most people, I'm not stuck in the mundane. I'm stuck in the chaotic, yeah. overwhelmed madness of ambition, mm -hmm. of wanting to do great things. Yeah. And because of it, it's always like, oh, I'll, I'll make time for the magic tomorrow. Yes. Mm -hmm. Tomorrow, tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Never comes. Never right. comes. So for those of us who are living a, a normal modern life, especially those of us who are really in our hustle and want to do great things, how do we slow down enough to make room? Part of it is what you're about. That's why I'm gravitating to your message is this whole idea of gratitude is that when you get into gratitude and you begin to think, hey, I may not be what I want to be, but thank God I'm not what I used to be, it gets better. Like, let me give you an example. So I was talking to a young guy that had been hit by a car and now he's paralyzed from the waist down. And I said to him, on a scale of one to 10, how do you see your life? He said, about a nine. And I said, what would make it not a 10? One would think he'd say the accident that now I'm a person that cannot walk. He said, uh, my mindset, my mindset. I, I, I don't believe in myself like I should. I never brought up the accident because he didn't in that context. But it's an amazing thing that here's a guy in a wheelchair that it was not being in the wheelchair that was stopping him. It was something else, just his mindset and believing in himself. So your whole idea of gratitude and realizing that while we have so much to be grateful for, that is the beginning of the miracle mentality. So when I wake up every single morning, I am like so thankful. I'm like little Timmy from Compton who can't wait to be first to the little TV with a hanger coming out of it so I can watch the cartoons before my brother and sisters. Does that make sense? It sure does. And this is the, the energy you feel today. I, I don't try to create this energy. This is actually just who I am, but part of it is coming out of what you teach is the gratitude to even be alive. What a privilege to breathe. What a privilege to breathe. I thought about that, which led me to my last question. Perhaps my most important question of them all. How do you know your assignment, your purpose? So I think that as many people have said, we become human doings rather than human beings. So let's talk about your life for a minute. So when you are 
too busy doing and not just being, what happens is that you just have so many voices in your head. But if I was coaching you, I would say, okay, for the next 30 days, we're going to really practice on let's stop, let's look, and let's listen. Because I believe that God put a God idea in everybody's heart, okay? Even while you were in your mother's womb. This is very powerful. So if I was to stop and to look and to listen, your dream has a voice. And your dream will start talking to you. So that's what happens to you. Like when you tell me the story of, uh, I got this idea for something and then I text my husband this about this idea. That was like, in my opinion, a God download or as Oprah would say, an aha moment. But my thing to get in alignment to my assignment is I stop and I look and I listen. And my assignment is to serve people and to love people and to be very alive. Cause I will only be alive so long on this planet. And I, I don't mind being 62 because what a privilege to be 62. And I wanna be 92 and look super dope, super swag. Uh, like when I saw Cindy Portier walking through the Beverly region when he was in his eighties and he's like, what? That's gonna be me. That's my goal at least. So. Uh, I'm into serving people, but I'm also into living. I like living. Tim, we like living too. And we're grateful for your guidance and making the waves a little easier to withstand while we're doing it. I'm so grateful you shared your time with us. And I too am grateful for Sydney Portier's swag and for your reminder to embrace my own inner swag, but not too much because I also need to quiet down Listen up, live, learn, and love. That's all for today. Remember, if you like what you heard, if it impacted you in any way, and if you think it's a message other people in your life might like to hear, I'd be so grateful if you'd give me five stars, leave a quick little comment, those things really help, and share this podcast with your friends, either on social media or just word of mouth. I'm on a mission for us all to help each other focus on expanding our attention towards what's good in the world rather than focusing on what's bad, one person at a time. If we all did that, even to our own little sphere of influence, the world has the potential to be a much more radically awesome place. Stick with me, friends, and I've got your back. We're in this together, and it's a great day to see the greatness in the day. See you next time. The Gratitudeology Podcast is written, executive produced, and hosted by me, Jamie Hess. Sound design and studio production by Gotham Production Studios. Our theme song is Maze by Hills, sung by Nadia Ali. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Gratitudeology. Would you walk through the fire? Would you ride through the storm? Will you walk on a wire? Will you save me if I fall? Will you break through the madness that is down? I'll be right